The Oracle Network. Warning. The following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. From October 2006 to December 2006, the residence of Ipswich, Suffolk was riddled with fear. Female sex workers were vanishing left and right, eventually being found murdered and nude right under everyone's noses. No one expected to find a serial killer stalking the women of Ipswich, Suffolk. No one expected the Ipswich Ripper to strike so violently over the course of three months in 2006. This killer was Stephen Gerald James Wright, also referred to as the Suffolk Strangler, Ipswich Ripper. Hello, and welcome to the jury room where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. Born on April 24th, 1958, Stephen Gerald James Wright was the second of four children born in the Norfolk village of Irpingham. His father, Conrad, was a military policeman, and his mother, Patricia, was a veterinary nurse. Stephen grew up with an older brother. David had two little sisters, Jeanette and Tina. The family traveled around and resided in Malta and Singapore, while Conrad was on active duty. In 1964, When Stephen was eight years old, his mother abandoned the family. Stephen wouldn't see her for 26 years, leaving him to be raised by his father for all that time. In 1974, Stephen was around 16 years old when he dropped out of school, joining the Merchant Navy. The Merchant Navy is the maritime fleet that serves specific countries. In this case, the UK being the country he served. While becoming a member of the Merchant Naval Fleet, he would take the position of chef on the Merchant Ferries sailing from Felixstowe, Suffolk. In 1979, Stephen would marry Angela O'Donovan. Stephen's father would eventually finalize a divorce from Stephen's mother, Patricia, in 1977. Eventually, both of Stephen's parents Patricia and Conrad would remarry their new partners and move on from the divorce. Conrad and his new wife, Valerie, would go on to have more children, a little boy named Keith and a little girl named Natalie. These children would become the adult Stevens' half-siblings. By 1987, things were not going well between Stephen and his wife, Angela. They decided to separate, which eventually led to their divorce. Through the years, Stephen took on many jobs, such as a steward on the Queen Elizabeth II, a truck driver, a barman, and a forklift truck driver. Stephen had grown to find a fascination with gambling throughout these years. 
Eventually, that fascination would turn into a full-blown gambling addiction. That addiction would lead to a series of failed relationships, loss of jobs, and an overall downward spiral in his demeanor and personality. In 1987, Stephen and Angela divorced. Their son, Michael, was four years old at the time of their divorce. Stephen would go on to marry 32-year-old Diane Castle in August of 1987, not long after his divorce was finalized. By July of 1988, Stephen and Diane were no longer together. Neighbors witnessed Stephen getting violent towards Diane. Diane would go on to speak out about the abuse from Stephen, discussing how it would come from out of nowhere. One moment, they would be having a nice conversation, and then, out of nowhere, he would begin to choke her. If Stephen and Diane were around others, Stephen would not stop abusing her, unless the people around them got involved. During this time, Stephen was the owner of a pub in Norwich. He was never single for long, but his violent ways played a role in every breakup. In 1989, he struck up a relationship with Sarah Whiteley. In 1992, they welcomed a beautiful little girl into the world. When his daughter was born, he was employed as a manager in a public house in South London. He didn't hold this job for long due to his gambling addiction and heavy use of alcohol. In 1993, Stephen and Sarah's relationship fizzled out. During this time, Stephen grappled with his gambling addiction. The debts he owed were steep, constantly piling up, and eventually he went bankrupt. In the mid-1990s, Stephen was going through a lot with his addictions and hard times. He wanted to end his life and attempted to complete suicide for the first time by filling his car with carbon monoxide, attempting to gas himself to death. He had another failed attempt in 2000, taking a copious numbers of pills to overdose. In 2001, Stephen had his first criminal conviction for stealing 80 pounds to pay off his gambling debts. When he was arrested, the police put Stephen's DNA into the national database. The same year, in Felixstowe, he met a woman named Pamela Wright. They were not related. The last names were just a mere coincidence. By 2004, the couple decided to move to Ipswich. Stephen was no stranger to sex workers. He had been paying sex workers for their services ever since his time in the Merchant Navy. When Pamela began working nights, the stress of the job and hard hours she was working made it so the couple rarely had sex anymore. Stephen yearned for the company and sexual favors of sex workers, deciding that he would seek out the comforts of the carnal pleasures he craved from the women who worked the streets of Ipswich at night. He would frequent brothels disguised as massage parlors and sauna establishments. From October 2006 to that December 2006, 
Twelve sex workers were paid by Stephen. Three of those young women would lose their lives. In early December of 2006, young female sex workers around Ipswich began to go missing. Stephen's violent, abusive nature had fully taken over his life. He no longer was content with physically abusing the women in his life. Now he sought out the fantasy of killing unknown women. The women who found themselves in the unfortunate situation of utilizing sex work to make a living would now be the target for a man who wanted to hurt women and enact his murderous fantasies. His victims did not want to find themselves in the world of sex work. Most would utilize it as a means of making enough money to support themselves. Stephen Wright's first victim would be 19-year-old Tanya Nicole. She had been described as a happy, smiling girl. Tanya had been a student at Chantry High School until she dropped out at 16, moving out of her home to live in a hostel. After leaving home, she would find herself falling into the world of drugs, becoming addicted to cocaine and heroin, finding herself in sex work. Sex work was her way of funding those dependencies, but sex work was not her first choice. Tanya had been employed at a massage parlor before she was fired. Her boss was wary that she had been using drugs while employed there, so thus they opted to terminate her employment. After being fired, Tanya moved back in with her mother and brother. Tanya never let on to them that she was a sex worker. As far as they knew, she was working at a pub or a hair salon. No one knew that she had been having to do sex work in order to make ends meet. Tanya was last seen alive on October 30th, 2006, at 11 p.m. in the red light district of Ipswich. On December 8th, her nude corpse was discovered. She was encompassed in waste in Belstead Brook by Copdock Mill. Tanya had been strangled to death likely dead before she was placed in the water. However, it could not be ruled out entirely that her final breath could have been taken in the water, which caused her to drown. The only other wound she had was a bruise to the back of her knee. The bruise was suspected to be from having been aggressively restrained. There was no evidence that she had been sexually assaulted. Two weeks later, another young woman would be found dead under suspicious circumstances. 25-year-old Gemma Adams, a friend of Tanya's, was last spotted around 1 a.m. on November 15. She was on the West End Road, where she resided. As a child, Gemma was well-known and well-liked. She adored horses and played the piano. During her teen years, she became dependent on heroin after getting mixed up with a rebellious group of friends. Gemma dropped out of high school at 16, due mostly to her drug abuse. In an effort to try and get back on a better track, Gemma decided to try and attend a Suffolk College, looking to take a course in health and social health care. Going to college was a way 
to try and get her life back on track. A year later, all of that would change. Gemma's addiction took her life over, and she even became distant from her family. Like Tanya, her profession was sex work, to pay for her addiction. Her parents tried hard to help their daughter beat her addiction. She was employed at an insurance firm, but due to her use of heroin, she was let go. Gemma's family had no idea she was a sex worker until she disappeared. It wouldn't be until her partner, who at the time was also addicted to heroin, notified them about what Gemma had been doing in order to make ends meet. For two and a half weeks, Gemma was nowhere to be found until December 2nd. Gemma was found nude in Belstead Brook at Hintelsham, more upstream than Tanya had been. Gemma had also been strangled. However, just like Tanya, it couldn't be said for certain if drowning was the cause of death or not. There was also no evidence that she had been sexually assaulted. Around the time that Tanya and Gemma went missing, the Belstead Brook was overflowing due to harsh rain. When the water subsided, the young women's bodies were easily seen by witnesses and authorities were called in. The next victim of the Ipswich Ripper was Anne Lee Alderton, who was 24-year-old mother of one. She had been expecting her second child. Anne Lee was three months pregnant when she went missing on December 3rd, 2006. It had only been one day since Gemma's body had been discovered. After Enley's parents separated, she and her mother moved from Ipswich to Cyprus in 1992. However, they moved back to Ipswich in 1997, where Enley went to Copleston High School. Anne Lee was a bright student who aspired to be a model. As a young teenager, her father was diagnosed with lung cancer, which he would tragically succumb to in 1998. His death would drastically change Anne Lee's life. She would turn to heroin to try to escape the pain of her father's death. Anne Lee would find herself addicted by the time she was 16. The evening of December 3rd, approximately around 5.53 p.m., Anne Lee left on a train in Harwich and went to Manningtree. At 6.15, she exited the train and transferred to another train heading towards the city of Ipswich, arriving there at 6.43. It was the last time she would be seen alive. The Ipswich Ripper had struck once more. The killer didn't go to his typical spot to discard Ann Lee's body. Ann Lee was found a week after her initial disappearance by an unknown member of the public, who thought Ann Lee was a discarded mannequin when they first came upon her remains. She was left in the woods right off the A-14. It was a very isolated region, yet accessible to someone who knew the area well. Her lifeless body had been there for a while, having been posed to resemble a crucifix, and she had also been strangled to death. 
The postpartum revealed that she was killed somewhere else and shortly after placed in the woods. Enley's parents had no idea their daughter was in the early stages of pregnancy until they were told by police after her autopsy. And now for a quick break. Have you ever listened to a podcast about porn? Why not let us be your guides? We do all the dirty work for you. All you have to do is sit back and enjoy. We are the porn connoisseurs. I'm Big C. And as always, you got your boy Jay. You can listen to our show, the Porn Stash Podcast, every other Monday. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else. Now, back to the show. Anley's parents and her boyfriend didn't know she had become involved in sex work in order to fund her addiction. Anley was officially now the third victim of the Ipswich Ripper. Investigators would hold a press conference urging women to stay away from the red light district. Days later, two more bodies would be found. 29-year-old mother of one, Annette Nicholas, vanished on the 8th of December. Her family did not wait long to report her as a missing person due to their fears of what was happening in Ipswich. Annette had gone to Suffolk College to be a beautician in the early 2000s. Not long after she finished college, drugs were introduced to her by her boyfriend and soon she was hooked. Like the other women, she also found herself falling into the profession of sex work to pay for her addiction. She was embarrassed that she was doing sex work to get by, but she was too dependent on drugs to give it up. Annette asked her mother to take in her little boy as she moved out of British public housing into low-cost social housing. On December 12th, Annette's nude, posed body would be found by a police helicopter off Felixstowe Road, not far away from the A-14. She would now be the fourth victim of the Ipswich Ripper. Like Annalee, Annette had been posed in a crucifix position, her arms extended. Annette's remains were found quickly after her disappearance as the police helicopter had been called out after the sighting of another deceased woman that day. During their search, they would spot Annette's remains, as well as that of another young woman. The remains that were found on the same day as Annette's belonged to 24-year-old Paula Clinnell, a woman who had happened to be a friend of Annette's. Her remains were found only a short distance away. Annette's body had lain there for three or four days. According to a fly infestation expert who had been brought in to determine decomposition timeframes. Like the Ripper's other victims, there was no evidence that she had been sexually assaulted. Although someone had obstructed her breathing, there was never a cause of death determined. Paula was last seen alive on the 10th of December. Due to Paula being dependent on drugs, 
Her three children had all been adopted into more stable environments after being in foster care. She knew what it was like to be a child in that situation. It wasn't long after her own experience in foster care when she began using drugs, stealing and finding herself in the sex work profession. Paula's mother recalled, heroin destroyed her life. I begged her to get help, but she had lost all hope. She was so desperate for heroin that she went on the streets. On December 12th, a person passing by spotted a nude woman on the same road as Annette Nicholas. Paula's cause of death was determined to be compression of the neck, either executed by a forearm or elbow. She was also under the influence of many opiates during the time of her passing. Unlike the Ripper's last two victims, Paula's remains weren't posed like Anna Lee and Annette. It seemed the killer was in a rush, discarding her body swiftly. She also had no signs of being sexually assaulted. Sadly and hauntingly, Paula had just been on the news talking about the murders in Ipswich. In the interview, she said that she was a bit weary about getting into cars. When asked why she continued to risk her life doing sex work, she responded, I need the money. Five women had just been murdered in the course of merely a few months. Authorities knew they were now dealing with a serial killer. One who was stalking the women working as sex workers in the red light district of Ipswich. The investigation into the murders was given a code name, Operation Sumac. The investigation was so large that the police force had to depend on outside help from other authorities. Over 300 police officers were working the case, with more than 400 calls coming in every day to detectives from people with tips regarding the Ipswich Ripper. By December 15th, over 7,000 calls had come in, along with the 300-plus police who were working the case. They also had the help of 25 other police forces. There was no way authorities were going to let the perpetrator get past their grasp. By December 18th, when they made their first arrest in the case, there were 650 officers helping. 350 of them were from 40 other police forces. The number of incoming calls to police daily had gone up to 10,000. The first suspect was a 37-year-old male who was held on suspicion. He could only be held for 96 hours under UK law. Eventually, he was let go on bail. The bail would eventually be annulled in June of 2007, after authorities determined that he had no involvement in the murders of the five women. His name was never released by police, but media outlets did release his name, claiming that the suspect arrested was Tom Stevens of Ipswich, who worked at a grocery store. Tom was a taxi driver, and at one point had been a volunteer police officer, bringing him into contact with the victims of the Ipswich Ripper. 
The Sunday Mirror, a UK publication, got in touch with Tom for an interview. Tom would tell them that he did know the victims fairly well and that he had tried to protect them as much as he could while they worked on the streets. On December 19th, a second suspect would be apprehended at 5 a.m. that morning. This suspect was a 48-year-old man who was taken from his home on suspicion after being under 24-hour surveillance. Investigators had first caught wind of this second suspect after forensic teams were able to find DNA from the killer on several of the women's bodies. That DNA would provide a match to a man who had once been arrested for stealing from his employer, which had caused the man's DNA to be entered into a police database. The DNA belonged to Stephen Wright. The arrest was very methodical, as the forensic experts needed more time to look for evidence. It was risky to not bring him in right away. But they knew, as soon as they apprehended the man, they would be working against the clock. There was a 36-hour extension allowed, so police could go more in-depth with their questioning, even though, to every question, the man answered, no comment. The police did, however, finally have their killer, and they knew it. The Ipswich Ripper was now identified to be that of 48-year-old Stephen Wright. Michael Crimp, Senior Prosecutor for the Crown Prosecution Service in Suffolk, and Senior Investigating Officer Stuart Gull, both let the public know Stephen Wright had been officially charged for the murders of all five women on December 21st. Stephen's partner, Pamela, was in for a huge shock. After she got off of work, she called Stephen on the morning of the 19th to wake him up. He didn't answer, which was unlike him. She had no idea that her partner Stephen had just been arrested for the murder of five young women. Police shortly arrived at her place of employment to tell her she was not allowed to go home and that Stephen had been taken into custody. However, she didn't know exactly what he had been arrested for. I stood there speechless, she said. It didn't enter my mind about these girls. When the police took Pamela in for questioning, it was then she found out what the man she cherished was being suspected of. Pamela was horrified and sickened. Stephen was taken, surrounded by security, to the Ipswich Magistrates Court. There, he was told he would be incarcerated until his court appearance in front of the town's Crown Court on January 2nd, 2007. Stephen's house was investigated with a fine-tooth comb by forensic experts and his car. A dark blue Ford Mondeo was removed from his house for inspection. Ten days after his arrest, Stephen called Pamela and declared he was innocent. She believed him. When Stephen appeared in court on the 2nd of January, he again was told he would remain in custody and his next appearance would be May 1st. 
On May 1st, he pleaded not guilty, and the trial would start in January of 2008. Pamela was having a difficult time being associated with someone being accused of these murders. She said, I couldn't go out and post a letter. I was terrified. I was constantly looking over my shoulder. That was the start of my lockdown, my remand. I just didn't want to wake up. I drank ridiculously. I was on antidepressants, anything to go to sleep. This case had become well-known, and anonymity was no longer an option for Pamela or Stephen Wright. January 16th, 2008. The prosecution began the opening statements, and the gruesome details were told. The public was shocked to finally find out what exactly had happened to these women. DNA from microscopic fibers were found on three women, and blood from two of the women was found on his jacket. A pair of gloves was found near the crime scene. Those gloves would be found to have evidence of Stephen's semen on them. Additionally, the police had also sifted through 10,000 hours of CCTV footage that linked Stephen Wright to the victim's crimes. His car was spotted on the footage during the quintessential times the women went missing. Neighbors even heard banging noises late at night coming from Stephen's house. Maintaining his innocence, Stephen took the stand attempting to defend his actions. He claimed all the evidence was a coincidence. He admitted he did have sex with these women, but stated that he never killed them. He admitted that he had had sex with Gemma in his car shortly before she went missing. He had also taken Anna Lee, Paula, and Annette to his house and had sex with them in his bedroom, but never used the bed because he didn't want Pamela to smell them on the sheets. He claimed he had sex with the women on the floor of his bedroom, on top of two jackets. Paula and Annette's blood were found on one of the jackets. Oddly, for someone who spent individual time with these women on many occasions, he was void of emotion, no sadness, no grief for these women he actually knew and had been intimate with. The argument from Stephen's defense team was that Stephen was no stranger to these sex workers, as he had had sex with all of the victims except Tanya, who he had intentions of having sex with when he picked her up, right before she disappeared. He was driving around when he picked her up. Supposedly, he had been having trouble sleeping, but decided not to sexually engage with Tanya. He drove Tanya to the red light district to drop her off, claiming he did not know he was in the red light district at the time. Even though he lived in the red light vicinity, for a significant amount of time. The jurors, nine men and three women, were taken to all the sites where the victims were found and even Stephen's home on January 21st. And now, for a quick break. 
Do you often feel lonely, talk to yourself, and wish you had more friends? So do the ladies of what I had heard was the podcast. But you don't have to start your own podcast to feel like you have friends. Just listen to theirs. What I had heard was has been steadily climbing the indie podcast charts. And if you act fast, you can say that you've been listening to them from the beginning, even if you are just starting now. Join them weekly for such great hits as Missed Connection Recaps, Reviews of your favorite sex toys, morally questionable topics that they just make up, and whatever this is. Find what I had heard was on your favorite podcast player, and be sure to subscribe to hear the new things they've heard about each week. And as a special bonus, if you sign up for the newsletter on wihhw.com, you'll receive a free sticker. Don't miss out on the newest season, as they talk about forgotten badass ladies. Act now! Now, back to the show. They weren't let into the house, but they took a look around the outside. The prosecutor speculated during the trial that maybe Stephen did not kill these women all by himself. Anna Lee, who was left in the woods, was far away from the road, and there were no signs that she had been dragged there. Could Stephen have carried her by himself, or did he have help? It was determined that she had been killed before she was taken to the woods. After deliberating for eight grueling hours, the jury came to a decision on February 21st, 2008. Each juror found Stephen Wright guilty of the murders. He was given automatic life in prison the next day. The judge said after a certain number of years, Stephen could apply for parole. However, the prosecutor insisted that life should mean life, and Stephen should never be given the chance to leave prison. The judge agreed based on the significant extent of premeditation and planning. Many family members of the victims were satisfied with the verdict. Others wanted Stephen to pay for his horrific crimes with his life. Before the verdict, Pamela called the accusations unkind and hurtful. She had no idea what the truth was. She could not, and to this day, cannot bring herself to believe the man she loves could be a cold-blooded killer. Pam may be struggling with what to believe, but her son, Jamie Goodman, is certain Stephen murdered these women. He said, I've got no doubt in my mind, but she chooses not to believe it. She's in denial. I think about what actually happened. But if that makes her feel better, I'm not going to force her to believe what I believe. The prosecutor stated after the trial, significant amounts of Wright's DNA were found on three of the victims and fibers from his car. Home and clothing were found on all five. Our assessment was that Stephen Wright was connected to all these women, and that connection was not just a coincidence. He was the last person to see them alive, and the significant evidence proves he was responsible 
for their deaths. Stephen Wright also failed to give a satisfactory explanation of why blood from two of the victims was on his jacket. In 2014, Stephen's father Conrad begged his son to stand up and confess to what he had done. He also didn't believe Stephen committed all these murders on his own. Telling the Daily Star, I have seen all the sites where the bodies of those poor girls were found, and it seems impossible he did it alone. Conrad, Stephen's father, blames himself for the deaths of these women. He told the BBC in June of 2015, When someone gets found guilty and you don't make a complaint or start crying out for help, you tend to think there must be some truth in it. You feel sort of responsible in a way. You brought the boy onto the earth, and if it weren't for you, he wouldn't have been there. And if he weren't there, they wouldn't be killed, would they? You can't just sit back and say, it's nothing to do with me, because it is. It feels rough, really. In October 2016, Conrad told BBC Suffolk that confessing was the only thing his son could do as a man, but he doesn't do it, does he? It's the only thing he could do to excuse himself, to stand up and admit it. I wouldn't forgive him. You can't forgive him. Their lives were taken away. You don't forgive anybody for that anyway. A lot of people suspect Stephen murdered more women and did not just start killing in his late 40s. There's at least one possible victim from 1986 that Stephen could be connected to. It's the still unsolved disappearance of a young woman named Susie. Susie had been a beautician on board the Queen Elizabeth II when Stephen was a steward there. Susie vanished in 1986 when Stephen was on shore leave. In 1994, Susie was pronounced dead. She and Stephen knew each other, and when Stephen moved to Brixton, Susie would go visit him. In the early morning hours of September 19, 1999, 17-year-old Victoria Hall vanished while walking home around 2.20 a.m. She had just finished eating with a friend at Bodrum Grill after they had been having a good time at a club called Bandix in Bent Hill, Felix Stowe. The two went their separate ways, and five days after her disappearance, her corpse was discovered 25 miles away in Stowe Market. Stephen Wright has continued to say he is completely innocent of not only those accusations, but the murders of all five women as well. To quote the prosecutor, As to what drives a man to embark upon a campaign such as this, we may never know. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out. Stay safe and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room.
addiction noun the factor condition of being addicted to a particular substance thing or activity an overwhelming compulsion what makes us fall into the world of drugs and addiction why can some of us dabble in the illicit and walk away unscathed while others of us travel downward into the deep spiral of addiction humans have always had a fascination with the allure of getting high our obsession with drugs isn't a new societal epidemic but one that has actually has its roots dating back to the ancient days of mankind while the drugs we utilize to try and get high nowadays may have shifted our fascination with the darkened path of addiction has not changed if you or a loved one have been struggling with addiction or have in the past and would like to share your story please feel free to reach out to me via social media or through email at juryroompodcast at gmail.com this is addicted a jury room production coming soon to wherever you listen to this podcast <laughs>